So we're looking at the book of Esther, and uh, we have a couple more weeks uh, in this fascinating uh, story uh, that is set in the empire of Persia. And in many ways, um, the book of Esther is about life both then and now, uh, lived in the heart of an empire, whether it's America or Persia. And in such a place, God is, um, is seemingly absent. The word uh, God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. It's a fasc- fascinating part of the book. Nor is there ever any prayer made to God in the whole book of Esther. And uh, so we see that uh, in the empire, um, whenever there's a, an, an empire, which is basically just human beings gathered together in their, in their pride and their boasting and their self-made glory, um, the glory uh, of the empire is always the, the thing that, is, uh, that shines forth and, and uh, eclipses the glory of God. That's how life is in the empire. Um, it's like we're looking at ourselves in a mirror rather than looking up at the sun. Um, and Esther is this exception in the empire of this brilliant uh, young Jewish woman who is uh, part of an exiled community. She is uh, an immigrant living in the shadow of, of the great and mighty King Xerxes. But she can see what the empire ignores. She has kind of an x-ray vision. Namely, she sees God. Uh, she sees God's glory. And it makes her very wise. Makes her very wise, which is in contrast to uh, King Xerxes and his friend Haman. And uh, these two men uh, are kind of the pillars of the empire. They're, if you will, the king and then the vice regent. And they are seen to be fools. Uh, they are fools in this book. With all their power, Esther is the wise one because she sees the invisible reign of God. And it makes her very wise. She fears God, as the Bible says. She fears God. Whereas Xerxes and Haman, they only see their own glory. And they have no fear of God. And uh, that's the contrast I want to make here uh, in this passage. The Proverbs, uh, chapter 9, verse 1 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And fear there doesn't mean you're terrified or you're groveling. It means reverence and respect and acknowledgement and awareness. And uh, Proverbs 9 once says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning or the source of wisdom. And then in Psalm 14, 1, it says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. And so that characterizes Haman and Xerxes, who live with no respect or reverence for anything but themselves, contrasted with Esther, who fears the Lord and sees the invisible reign of God uh, when there's no real signs of that around her. So those two things. First, the foolishness of Haman and Xerxes, and then the wisdom of Esther, powerless Esther. So let me give you a brief plot summary. Uh, So King Xerxes, in the beginning of the book, he is furious with his wife, Queen Vashti, because she refuses to dance naked before he and his drunken friends. And so she, uh, she is divorced by him. He puts her away, and he sets up this uh, grotesque beauty contest where he picks all the most beautiful virgins in the, the entire empire, and he, um, he sees which one can give him the most pleasure in bed, and the lucky winner has the grand prize of getting him to be her husband. And the winner is Esther, a Jewish young woman. And uh, after that, we meet this man, Haman. And Haman is the very powerful friend of King Xerxes. And Haman um, gets Xerxes to pass a law that says that every time Haman walks by, you have to bow down to him. And it almost seems ridiculous that that could happen. 
Uh, but if you, know, if you know the human heart and the human condition, you're aware that that kind of thing does happen. Where a law could be passed that whenever this man walks by, you have to bow down to him. So that's, that's Haman. Um, and then this man named Mordecai is the final character. Um, Mordecai is Esther's cousin. And Mordecai will not bow down to Haman when he walks by. Because Mordecai is Jewish and he will not bow down to a mere mortal. And so Haman is so enraged by Mordecai not bowing down to him that Haman gets a law passed. He gets his friend Xerxes to pass a law that says uh, all Jewish people are going to be killed. It's like a holocaust. Every Jewish person in the whole empire will be killed. And so Mordecai finds out about this. He tells Esther, he says, Esther, you've got to do something about this. You're the queen. You've been put in that position for just such a time as this. Please try to persuade him to change that law. And Esther, with incredible bravery, um, bolstered by this tidal wave of prayer, she asks for prayer and says, I will try my best to do that. I will, um, I will go before the king and I will ask him to change that law, which she knows could cost her uh, her life. But she comes up with this plan in the three days that, that uh, she is praying and fasting and all her people are praying and fasting. And during those three days... Uh, God gives her wisdom, and she comes up with a plan of how she's going to carry this thing off. And um, the the plan depends entirely on the the pride and the egotism and the addiction to their greatness of Xerxes and Haman. That's how she gets them to do what she wants, is to play to their weaknesses, which which is their ego. Uh, In verse 4, And verse 8, you see a little bit of this. It happens throughout the chapter, but if you look in verse 4 and verse 8, she says, if it please the king, and if I have found favor with the king. And uh, it's the way that uh, subjects always have to deal with kings by kind of puffing them up and using these exalted titles and acting very deferential and humble. And she probably was looking down. And um, she was making sure he knew that, that he was great in her eyes. That, that he was much greater than she was. Uh, she was always showing him adoration and reverence. And it had its intended effect. Uh, in verse 3, he says, What is your request? I will give it to you even if it is half of my kingdom. And he says that again in verse 6. Uh, what is your request? I will give it to you even if it is half of my kingdom. So he's bragging about his largesse. He's bragging about how generous he can be. Actually, King Herod does the same thing in the New Testament. Uh, I will give you anything you want, even if it's half my kingdom. So he's kind of boasting there because he cannot get enough of her deference, uh, her looking up to him. Um, It's this amazing thing. This is the most powerful man in the world. Maybe the most powerful man ever to exist. And yet he is enslaved to his own ego. He can't even control himself. The most powerful man in the world. And yet he's a slave to his own ego. And Haman is even worse. Haman, his friend, is even worse. And in verse 4, Esther is so clever. She says, let the king and Haman come today to a banquet that I have prepared. And uh, he's so flattered by Esther's request that he skips all the way home. He's so happy. It says, uh, verse 9, Haman was a happy man as he left the banquet. And so he is uh, just full of himself, uh, full of how great he is, thinking you know, it's, it's, that I... It's only me and, and the king. Um, we're the only two that the queen invited to her banquet. Aren't I great? Aren't I special? But then, in verse 10, he saw Mordecai sitting at the palace gate, 
not standing up or trembling nervously. He was really hoping that Mordecai would be trembling nervously by this point. But no, Mordecai is just sitting there. He will not bow down still. And it says that Haman became furious. Uh, He can't stand it. And all of his excitement is just completely flushed down the toilet because Mordecai is sitting there and he will not bow down to him. And, uh, and, and Haman figures the only way he's going to get back uh, his sense of his own greatness, he's, he's got to go home and get his wife and all his friends to come over, and he's got to boast some more. He's got to brag in front of them some more just to get back his, uh, his sense of his own greatness. And so in verse 10 it says, uh, Haman gathered together his friends and his wife Zeresh, and he boasted to them about his great wealth and his many children. And he bragged about the honors that the king had given him and how he had been promoted over all the other nobles and the officials. And this is kind of getting to the, uh, the essence of foolishness. Is this desire that Haman had, that Xerxes had, that um, we are all prone to, especially as Americans, have to say, um, in a culture that is all about how great you are, how you deserve everything. Um, Foolishness is needing everyone to think highly of you all the time. And a lot of ways we require that. We kind of ask of that. And really it's not just that people think highly of us, like uh, you're a good teacher, you're a good pastor, you're a good mom or dad, or you're a good artist, or you're a good lawyer, or you're creative, or you're a good doctor, or a nurse, or you're a good athlete. It's not just that. That's, That's nice, but what we really want to hear is you're the best. There's no one like you. You're the greatest. Um, I've never seen anyone else as good as you. That kind of thing. I mean, it always hurts to hear that someone is better than you. Which, um, it should be pretty obvious that there are people out there better than us, but we never want to hear that. And so, um, saying something like, your chicken pot pie is absolutely amazing. I think it's the second best I've ever had. Um, That's not a good thing to say uh, to your spouse. Or... um, you know, y'all did that song so well. I've only heard one or two or three or four other bands do it better than that. And somehow that, that is not encouraging, although it really, it should be. Or you're the, be- the second best friend I have in the whole world. You know, that, somehow that there's a sting in that. It should be really encouraging, but um, you want to be the BFF, not the second best friend. And Haman says, uh, Queen Esther invited only me and the king in verse 12. He's crowing, only me and the king. But, even this, in verse 13, is worth nothing at all. As long as I see Mordecai the Jew just sitting there at the palace gate. It's worth nothing. Even, if it, even, because, even just me and the king and how I'm number two after the king and she loves me. But then he sees Mordecai and it, it's just it's nothing to him anymore. Not, all, that, all that adoration, honor... It's nothing to him anymore. My wife wrote uh, in the margin of her Bible, she says, doesn't it feel terrible when your idols get crushed? This is, this is all worth nothing to me as long as I'm stuck in this job. You know, think about your life and all the great things that God has given you and you say to yourself, this is, this is nothing to me as long as he won't date me. Or as long as I have this B on my transcript, all this is worth nothing to me. And you just get fixated on the B. Or my sister weighs two pounds less than me, and so all this other stuff is worth nothing to me. Or my colleague was just promoted over me, and so uh, my wonderful house and my wife and children and all my friends and whatever is worth nothing to me because 
because my colleague or my friend is more popular than me. And so all these things are worth nothing to me. Doesn't it feel terrible when your idols get crushed? It seems like no matter how much positive feedback I get, uh, I just need more. I just need more to keep me going. It's kind of like you know, the way that an airplane burns through uh, fuel. I just, every three hours or so, I need another hit. I need more fuel coming in. Just pushing me along uh, with a sense of you know, being okay, or else I'm going to crash, or else that plane's going to come down. Just think about how susceptible we all are to flattery. I mean, if, if you really want to control someone, then flatter them. It's the surest way to get them to do something for you, if you flatter them. Um, you know, it's, it's what Esther's doing here. Uh, you're so smart and funny, maybe you can write uh, a paper with me. Maybe you can help me finish my paper, because you're such a brilliant writer. Or you're such an amazing cook, maybe you can make, uh, make me dinner tonight. Or you're so thoughtful and kind, maybe you can give me some counsel on this. This is a, a lot of times a lot of affairs, I have to say, a lot of affairs start this way. Uh, not so much with uh, just physical attraction, but it's more like the, uh, the buttering up. You're so incredibly sensitive, or you're so beautiful, or you're so strong, or so smart. If someone is telling you those things and you're married, you need to just get out of there. Just flee that situation. Uh, you do not want someone telling you that. Uh, this is how advertisements work. They show us about 30 seconds of some image that we think we're like, um, you know, some kind of ideal life. And then all of a sudden at the end of that 30 seconds, like an Apple logo appears or a Subaru logo or a Nike logo. And suddenly we're buying this stuff just because it's there next to this montage of images that we think is what we'd like to be like. That's, that's foolishness. That's foolishness. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, which is not about atheism. Uh, there really were no atheists back then as we would define them now. That's, that, that statement, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, that is not about atheism. It's about godlessness. It's about living without any reference to something greater than you. It's, uh, it's living without um, reverence. It's, it's practical atheism. It's saying there's nothing higher than me. There's nothing I should bow down to. There's nothing, nothing I should fear. I am the, uh, the ultimate standard. I am the measure of all things. I am the captain of my own ship. I am the author of my destiny. So that's foolishness. Now, wisdom is exactly the opposite, which is what we see in Esther so clearly. Uh, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And fear is, uh, is Esther leaning into a power that is much greater than herself, that is unseen, that is undetectable by any kind of scientific instruments. Uh, it's counting on that. It's banking on this God who is, uh, who's not mentioned in the whole book. And Esther is in dire straits. Uh, she's going into the king's presence without an invitation. This is uh, potentially lethal. She could have her head chopped off. Uh, but on the third day of the fast, this is verse 1, Esther put on her royal robes and entered the inner court of the palace. So after three days of fasting, um, she and her entire people, all the Jewish people in Persia, after three days of fasting and praying, totally relying on God, uh, on the third day of the fast, she goes in and executes her plan. And um, I think the prayer and the fasting give her this perspective um, where she's kind of like up on a hill and she's seeing uh, the battle from afar. 
Um, she's very far-sighted. She's not hasty. She's not impatient. Um, it says in verse 2, she was just standing there. Xerxes saw her standing there in the inner court. And to the world, that's foolish. Just to be standing there like that, uh, waiting to have her head chopped off. But uh, to God, th- this is a beautiful thing. that She has put herself entirely in the hands of God. Uh, she is trusting in this person who she cannot see. And she is saying in her soul, without, without you, I'm lost. I don't know what to do without you. And notice how calm she is and how collected she is. Um, what do you want, Queen Esther? Verse 3. The king asks her. And then there's a long pause. In Hebrew, whenever there's two questions back to back, that means there's a pause between them. So, what do you want, Queen Esther? And then he says, what is your request? Which means that she's been standing there, silent, after he asks her, what do you want? She's just waiting. And then after a little while, notice that her request is not... um, You remember that law that you passed about the Jews all being killed? Um, Well, I happen to be Jewish, so that's... I would love for you to change that law. She could have just come right out and said that, but she doesn't do that. Um, she's, that would not have gone well. Her request is simply, uh, can I give you a gift? Which is, which is a really pretty safe request to make. Can I, can I have a banquet for you? I mean, if she had just come right out and said, can you, can you overturn that law? Then uh, the king would, would say, well, this is my best friend Haman who made the law. And, uh, and I, don't, I don't overturn laws that I make. I'm, I'm a god. I'm the king. So there's no way at that moment that he would have overturned the law. But she asks him to come to a banquet, verse 4. Will the king and Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared? And it's so brilliant that she includes Haman. Uh, it might seem stupid to do that. It might seem very risky. Why would you bring your arch enemy right to the table with you? But that's the very point. Is she has him right there where, where she can see him. And it's kind of like Abraham Lincoln, the way that he took all his enemies and he brought them into his cabinet um, so that he could kind of look over them and make sure that they were right there with him at the table. He can kind of control them. That's exactly what Esther's doing here in bringing Haman to the table. He's also, she, she's also flattering him and, and causing him to have good feelings towards her and kind of able to be caught off guard. And then when they get there, there's a lot of alcohol which is another very wise thing. That uh, There's a lot of drinking going on. She's, she's probably not drinking a lot herself, but she's letting them drink a lot. And, uh, and so in verse 6, it says they were drinking wine. And then at the critical moment, and I, I love this part, in verse 6, Xerxes asks again, okay, so now, what is your request? Here we are at your banquet. I'm dying to know, what do you want? And... Um, it seems like in verse 8 that Esther is actually listening to God at this point. Uh, one commentator said that, that she's actually listening to God. Look at verse 8. If I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request and do what I ask. And then there's a pause in Hebrew. Um, there's a hard break there in the Hebrew sentence. And what it means there, I think, is that she's sitting there waiting. She's wondering, is the timing right? And again, it's wisdom. She's been praying for wisdom for three days and fasting for three days. And she's wondering right there, God, is this it? Is this the right time? And she's kind of measuring the situation. And then sure enough, 
Wisdom tells her it is not the right time. So she says in verse 8, please come with Haman tomorrow to another banquet. And then I'll explain. And I just love the way that she is, uh, she's waiting on God. Um, she, she's so supple to the, to the uh, ways of God, to the wind of God. Uh, she's listening to his leading. She's not pushing her agenda. She's not leaning on her own understanding. Uh, she's taking herself out of the equation. And there's a real elegance to this. Again, it might have been the reason that, that Xerxes chose her early on. It's just this quality to her where it's this lightness of touch. Kind of like a, a dancer, a graceful dancer. I, I read this quote a few weeks ago. I'm going to read it again. Uh, it's from a book called Abandonment to Divine Providence. And the writer says, The soul that is abandoned to providence is as light as a feather, liquid as water, pliant and easily receptive like the atmosphere, which is affected by every breeze or Water which flows into any shaped vessel, exactly filling every crescent. So is the soul abandoned to God's providence. And that's Esther. Just waiting, patient, judging the situation, not rushing, not pushing, doesn't seem stressed. Um, Very collected, very poised, very calm. There's a movie uh, called American Beauty uh, that um, I can't completely recommend. Um, but it's in many ways, it's a brilliant movie. Uh, I'm not saying don't go out and watch it and say that the pastor told me to watch it. But there's this one scene that I think is the most famous scene in the, in the movie. And um, there's a boy named Ricky who always has a camcorder. And he records everything. So he just goes around recording everything. And uh, in this particular scene, there's a, a bag, a plastic bag like you would get at Harris Teeter. And it's just kind of blowing in the wind. Uh, and there's a brick wall behind it. Uh, And it's just the bag is just kind of blowing like this and that. And he's filming it. And in the movie, you see it through his little camcorder. And um, it seems like a stupid scene, but it goes on for a while. And uh, you don't really know what's going on there. But there's this beautiful music uh, playing in the background. And the more you watch this bag, it looks like it's dancing. Uh, It looks like uh, it's actually going through some kind of uh, artistic piece. And it's, it's actually really a stunning thing. Again, that's the thing that I remember from the whole movie, is that scene with the bag. And I still know exactly the point in the movie of the bag. But I thought that whenever I think of uh, that scene, I think of elegance. I think of a, a lightness of being. Kind of like the quote about the soul abandoned to providence. And I think about Esther there. I, when I read this passage, I thought of that scene. I thought about, I thought about the elegance of her wisdom. And it's so, so much the opposite of being stressed and rigid and demanding your agenda and you've got to get it done right now um, it's just being abandoned to, to God's providence and that situation she is in is so stressful I mean I'd be picking my nails and you know, uh, pulling out my hair and stuff like that but she seems to be so much in the hands of God a friend of mine texted me this week and I, I was asking him how he was doing he said I am, I am riddled with stress and anxiety my job, my chronic hip pain awful sleep lately and he said this he called it an overloaded lifestyle i don't know if any of you can um, relate to that but uh, he called that an overloaded lifestyle and then a little bit later after a few more texts back and forth he said can you imagine when we see the face of jesus how temporal and vaporous all past anxieties will be but right now they have physical real effects on me it's like the inverse of glory. And I was reading that at the same time I was reading the passage. 
And I was just thinking, how much lighter would my life be if I lived in wisdom? And if I lived in the fear of the Lord, instead of being like the fool who says in my heart, there is no God. Uh, what if I lived in, in, in prayer like she does and relied on this God who was out there uh, in the silence? Where, again, the, the name of God's never mentioned, but Esther sees. And she, she lives and she acts as if God is there, is real. I was so frustrated by something this past Monday that at dinner, I was there, but I was not there. It's kind of like a big emotional blob, just kind of, you know, vibrating at the table. And you kind of push in, it kind of moves around, but nothing really is happening. There's no resistance. That's kind of how it was on Monday at dinner. And I was very unresponsive. I was very full of myself. I was focused on certain facts and how they reflected on me, and uh, which was great fun for my family, for me to be like that at dinner. And I thought um, I had detected a few data points that were trending downward. So I had, I had marked a few data points in my life. And you know how we do this. And they were trending downward. And the slope was rapidly increasing. So it was going like this in my mind. And then on Tuesday, I added another dot to that graph, which fit perfectly with my pessimistic predictions. Um, but this time, I, thankfully, I told my wife about all this stuff that was going on in my head. And um, that was the beginning of wisdom. And she, she listened quietly uh, to my complaints and just kind of said, hmm. Didn't really say anything for a while. Uh, but then an hour or so later, which is reminiscent of Esther again, just waiting patiently. She, um, she wasn't hasty, but she was very decisive. And she kind of took that graph figuratively and balled it up and threw it in the trash. And she said, uh, it is not about you um, or your fame or your kudos or your standing in life or your, or your position relative to anyone on some kind of crazy ranking system that you've created in your mind. The, she said, God has you here right here and right now for purposes that you don't know anything about. They're uh, all unseen. And yet, uh, he is doing exactly what he wants with you. He's doing with you exactly what he wants to be doing with you. And I could say that exact same thing to you. And how, how seldom do we believe that? And how often do we believe the opposite of that? The foolishness in our heads. And uh, in this meal... Uh, we hear from um, wisdom himself. Uh, he's called the Word, uh, the Logos, which is another word for wisdom. Um, Jesus is wisdom incarnate. If you look at his teachings, it is, is sheer wisdom. And we believe that uh, Jesus was from heaven, that he came down as wisdom and became a human being and took on our flesh. And he takes in this meal all our, all our stupid graphs and our downward trending predictions, or maybe the upward trending predictions, and he just crumples them up and he throws them in the trash, and he says, uh, it is not about you and your achievements and your accomplishment and your standing relative to other people and how much people respect you or honor you or don't honor you or don't pay attention to you. It's not about any of those things. I want you to see in this meal how much I love you. This is a love feast. It's a place where God shows us who we really are against all the, all the factors and the metrics and the analytics of the world. He says, this is what you need to stand in awe of, which is who you are in Christ. This is who you are. Not these things that your voice tells you about. 
This is what makes you wise when you fear the Lord and come to your true identity uh, with reverence. Your, your greatness, uh, made in the image of God and redeemed in Christ. Now, having said all that, um, before we take the meal, uh, I always want to say that um, when I was an atheist and would go to church and uh, didn't know exactly what to do when the, the Lord's Supper was celebrated, I, I felt like it would be hypocritical of me to take it when I, didn't, I knew I didn't believe. And faith is always a process. It, it took me a long time to come to faith. But if you're still not uh, there yet, if you're kind of on this side, and you're still discerning whether you believe this stuff or not, I want to just invite you to not partake. That uh, We don't want to force anyone to be a hypocrite or to do something uh, where you don't feel like you have integrity in doing that. There are people who come here every week who don't partake in this part of the service, and that's fine. Um, it's what Austin said earlier. We want people to be here uh, who are struggling, who are skeptical, who um, don't really know much about what the church is. So uh, as we take this meal, just remember as we come up here that we're, we're saying we're not better than you or anyone. Uh, that this is a meal of fools. Fools are coming up here to try to receive wisdom. But we're not saying that we're wise in ourselves. We're saying that we're fools, that we need wisdom, and that wisdom is on offer here. So on the night he was betrayed, uh, our Lord Jesus took bread, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, broken for you. And then he took the cup.